We are going to go right into scripture at this time, and we're going to continue where we left off and plow a little bit more forward in Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and we're going to go till 25. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to gather with your people, to come to your word with expectant hearts. We pray you'd speak to us, open our hearts, open our understanding to hear from you today. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence here. That Jesus said he wouldn't leave us as orphans, but that he would send you. And that you're here to glorify Jesus, to reveal him. And we pray that you would do so. And we thank you, Father, for your unbelievable love that meets us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I remember years ago, a very dear friend of mine, um, at this point, wow, over 20 years of knowing her, um, but when I first met her, she was pioneering something that was quite radical at that time, but uh, wasn't fully the norm or accepted yet. She was pioneering um, work in domestic violence, and her clinic uh, which became international, she's spoken at the UN, all over the world, was the first that served not only the victims, but the victimizers. That was not done at that time. Normally, it was only, treatment was only given to those who suffered domestic violence, and rightly so. But she began to pioneer this work um, in helping those that actually committed these vile, horrid things. Um, and so as a result, she has some experience. She's undergone some painful experiences in domestic violence herself. She actually has partial hearing loss because of some of the things she suffered. She's, like her radar, I've noticed, is extra sensitive. She kind of can see stuff a mile away. She can pick up on things. And so there was this guy that we were in this gathering, a bunch of leaders, and I would see that she would kind of get edgy around him. Um, because, quite frankly, he was kind of really like extra huggy. How, how, many, how many people, when you see... 
the laughter from this side is so strong. He was just very extra huggy. And um, some people like that. Some of you are like, hey, don't say anything bad about extra huggy people. I'm an extra huggy person. I'm not coming for you. And so, but she, she, I saw that she had this edge and stuff until his story came out. And then all of a sudden, her defenses went down. It was a bit graphic, so I'm going to try. I, I noticed there's some young kids here, so I'm going to try to get through this um, without causing trauma. This gentleman, unfortunately, when he was younger, growing up in the segregated South, he witnessed his mother and his aunt get butchered as a child. You don't walk away from that unscathed. That will change you forever. And so as a result, he began to share how whenever he is around women that he cares for, he gets like this bearish, like I'm here to protect. It was an interesting thing seeing the defensiveness to, to now, now that she knew more of the story, I'm sure she still didn't want as many hugs, but they came across differently. And that's actually what happens when we get to know people, when we get to really know them, when we get to know who they are. Uh, that understanding changes how we relate to them, how we relate to ourselves. And, and what we've been slowly going through in these verses in Romans chapter 1 it has been a master class from God in helping us to get to know ourselves. It, he's helping us to see who we truly are, what makes us tick, what's underneath our motives, what drives us. And here, these verses begin, verse 18, with these words that can be quite unsettling. Because today we're going to talk about the wrath of God. And even as I say those words, for many of us, it's like, oh, man, I thought I showed up on the love of God Sunday. You know, like you're like, this is the wrath of God Sunday. Like those words are jarring. They come with baggage. Um, and there's a lot of images and stuff that comes up for us when we hear those words. But if we're going to understand God's description of us as we've been journeying in Romans 1, we have to take a look at what it means for God to express what scripture calls wrath. Because right there, the first verse, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we looked at last week how one of the ways that sin impacts us is by this driving force called idolatry where we are constantly pushing God out of the center of our lives, denying his existence, suppressing the truth, where we see his reality in creation and where we, we sense his reality in our conscience, but yet we're still pushing it, denying it. I, I talked about an example was, if you've ever seen somebody, especially now and nowadays, it's actually extra if, funny, but that may sound cruel, interesting. When someone goes through a breakup, in our digital age, the work that has to be done to expunge their digital imprint. All of a sudden now it's just like, man, they were all over the Instagram. Now I remember that memory, but weren't you with that? It, it's, just, it's just an interesting exercise that you see. And, but what is that person doing? They are saying, even though they exist, 
I am erasing the record of their existence from my life. That's what Romans 1 tells us we are actively doing to God. He exists, but we're saying I'm going to actively erase his existence from my life. And what Romans 1 also tells us as a result, a response to this audacious, insulting, prideful thing that we do against the living God, Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed in response to this. It says this word that I think it's interesting to unpack. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Have you ever heard someone say, man, that was ungodly? Uh, we use it all sorts of ways. We, uh, you hear it. It's actually a very interesting word. In the original language that the scriptures were written, it means impiety, to be impious. It means the absence of sacredness towards something that we should consider sacred. But it also means disloyalty. And so the scriptures are telling us in response to our conscious choice to live disloyal to our creator, the wrath of God is revealed. And then Romans 1 gives us the essence of our ungodliness, and it gives specific examples of our ungodliness, and it's describing, again, our choice to live with disloyalty, with impiety, to live with the absence of sacredness toward God. It's describing a life for which idolatry is the key driving force, and as a result of that, Humanity experiences the wrath of God because of this idolatry that we live in. But now, again, for any of us who were hoping that today was a love of God Sunday, and you're saying, man, we've got to talk about the wrath of God, let's talk about the wrath of God. And let's tackle the issue at hand that it's perplexing, it's disorienting, to hear that God has wrath. When you hear, if you, in your workplace, let's just say you got assigned to a new department and you're all excited. You're like, man, it's a great opportunity. Next Monday I start, new department, great corner office, and I'm going to be reporting to so-and-so. And someone says, oh, man, you know that manager? The manager is very wrathful. You're not going to say, oh, I can't wait. You know, that sounds great. That, I've been longing for a wrathful manager. No, you're, it's going to shake you. You're going to be like, man, that, that means this person's going to be irate. They're going to be triggered. They're going to be reacting. I'm going to experience intense anger. The, the word wrath triggers all sorts of images when we try to figure out what does it mean. So I want to acknowledge the heaviness of this word. For some of us, memories of experiencing someone's unbridled anger comes up. And so we naturally say, I don't want to think of God like that. That is an image of God that I can't understand. I can't relate to. I don't know what to do with spiritually. Again, I want to 
acknowledge the difficulty in this word. But I want to slowly introduce you to the fact that if God is not wrathful, then he won't be fully loving. I know that's uncomfortable. It takes some time to sit with it. But actually, if God had no wrath, then we couldn't claim him to be fully loving. What do I mean by that? If God feels no anger, no frustration over seeing us bruise and hurt one another, over seeing us damage our world, over seeing us constantly replace him with things and, and settle for such a lesser life than, we could, than, than what he created us for, if that doesn't frustrate him and doesn't trigger him to respond, then actually it's not fully loving. If you've ever had the painful experience of seeing a parent journey with a child that suffered through addiction, you've got a little glimpse of what the wrath of God is like. Because you watch a parent agonize as their child is destroying their life. And they feel helpless because they don't want this for them. They know their life can be so much better, so much different, and they're watching them throw it all away. Imagine a parent in that scenario being detached and saying, oh, well, it's your life, not mine. I did what I had to do. Go figure it out. Don't come to me for help. That would sound odd, wouldn't it? That, that you would need some more information on that. It was like, I don't want to judge you, but that's an, an alarming response I don't feel any empathy or agony or, or sadness or remorse. And so imagine if God did not feel wrath over watching us dismiss him, consciously choose to forget him, to push him out of our lives, to replace him. Imagine if he had no wrath, then you are imagining a God who doesn't fully love us. So if you've experienced the love of God, You've experienced love that has come out of wrath as well. Wrath has been present in the way he chose and chooses to love us. But here's a surprise that I know I didn't fully understand. When I first began to study the wrath of God, the character of God many years ago, and in particular, looking at these verses afresh, I was reminded again that it's actually very surprising how God's wrath is revealed. I want to tell you, it's probably not what you and I expect. It's not the lightning from heaven. It's not the thunder. It's not the fire in the sky actually something quite different. I remember years ago, I was taking a trip to Montreal. Has anybody ever been to Montreal? It's a great city. Um, it's really cool driving into Montreal um, because you're, you're all of a sudden you're like, 
I just arrived in Europe. This is amazing. Like, and, and I didn't fly, you know, like it's, it's one of the most European cities that you could uh, be there in a car. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and this was a post Easter trip before the pandemic. I had this yearly rhythm with my best friend who I've known since high school, where we would plan a post Easter trip. And my wife is an incredibly good wife. And so she's like, go, you need it. Go get some rest. I know this season. And so it would be a lot of fun. And we planned these road trips. And uh, he had an amazing car. It was a Mercedes-Benz, like, S-Class truck. Now, during that time, I was driving a Mazda 626. Can I tell you, that car, when I would press the gas, I think it had a conference among itself and said... I don't know if we're going to heed that command, Chris. That car would not move. It was just so slow. And so now I'm driving, and we're listening to great music, and I didn't realize your boy was going 92 miles an hour. Just having fun. And then we hit a construction zone. And in a matter of time, it went from the, the, miles, the speed limit being 75. I was still over considerably. Now the speed limit dropped to 55. I will never forget that moment for a few reasons. One, it was, we got stopped at Peru, New York. Did you know that upstate New York had a town called Peru, New York? How how insecure do you have to be to name a town after a glorious city, you know? Anyway, like Peru, New York, where am I? Um, And the the cop is is reading me the riot act, and he's letting me know I could arrest you right now. And you know what my response was at that moment? He said, you are correct, officer. I have no excuse. Do you know what I really wanted to say at that moment? Please, 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 don't do this to me. Please, please, please. I'll never do it again. I wanted to plead. No, it was just like, you are correct. I have no excuse. You know what it's like to hear what Romans 1 tells us and for it to land in this way. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, verse 20, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We're being told very explicitly, clearly, that God's wrath is completely justified. Before I tell you how we experience God's wrath, it's important to know he's not being unfair. He's not being extreme. We are without excuse. The fact that we choose to live lives that actively forget God is inexcusable. Because we're constantly reminded of his reality and his presence. And the fact that we continue to ignore him, to replace him with things, it's inexcusable. So when God's wrath shows up, we need to be very clear. It's inexcusable on our part. We are caught red-handed. It's because of our unrighteousness. We're suppressing the evident truth about God. We're replacing him with things. And so that's why God pours out his wrath. But here's the big surprise. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is? 
how we experience it, how God directs his wrath toward us, it's going to surprise you. It's found in verse 24. It says, because of all these things, we replace God, we push him out of the center of our lives. We're idolatrous, we're unrighteous, we're ungodly, we're disloyal. This is how God directs his wrath toward us. It says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The way we experience the wrath of God, it's not lightning, it's not thunderbolts, it's not fire in the sky. It's God giving us up to the very things that we have said, I'm going to replace you with these things. It's God giving us what we want. Ooh. Think about that. Sometimes the way you and I experience the wrath of God is by God giving us what we want. What we refuse to measure and weigh and say, have I let this replace God? Is this more important to me than God himself? And we don't care. We don't measure it. We don't weigh that out. And then God says, okay, here you go. Have what you're asking for. I remember early on in my marriage, my wife didn't understand that um, colored people, Puerto Rican people, she's Irish, that we have a different relationship to time. Um, and so there was a baby shower. And, and also she didn't fully understand that my people pioneered baby showers that were co-ed. You know, men were invited. And so that was different for her. And so we were invited to this, to this baby shower, and it's 2 o'clock. That's when it starts. And she's like, hey, we got to go. But I know <laughs> 2 o'clock is a fluid time. I, I know how my people roll. I'm like, no, we got time. She's like, no, it's, it's disrespectful. You got, you're going to be late. That you don't do that to people. And, and I said, you know, I'm just going to have to let her experience this. I said, you're right, honey. Let's go. Get in the car, and she's she, the whole ride. She's like, "Doesn't this feel good to be on time?" Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. Yeah, we're gonna get there on time. It's gonna be great. I'm so glad you pushed back. You know, it wasn't sensitive of me. You're right. Two o'clock is two o'clock. We gotta respect that. Yeah, let's go. All right, we get there, and the folks did not arrive till maybe three fifteen, three thirty. And the beautiful thing, they walked in real proud, like nothing. It was great, you know? <laughs> I was just, it's like, and I saw as the minutes progressed, her going through like a metamorphosis of just like, where are they? This, what, it, they said two o'clock, and what's wrong? I was just like, yeah, I don't know, you know? It's, <laughs> hope they're okay. It, 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 I had to let her experience that. Next time we were invited, I had to drag her. I'm like, hey, we got to go. She's like, ah, we get there when we get there. I was like, no, no. In, in, in many ways, 
And I can't even imagine what it's like on God's end. He's watching us saying, my job is more important than you. These good things in my life are more important than you. I live every day with other things at the center of my life. I derive my meaning, my identity apart from you. I'm consciously choosing to forget you. I'm erasing you from my memory, consciously, denying your reality. And the pain that God must feel and say, okay, I know it's not going to satisfy you. I know it's going to leave you empty. I know you're going to realize very shortly that this thing makes a terrible God. It cannot carry you. It's not built with the capacity to give you the meaning and the affirmation and the love you long for. But you keep choosing this. So he gives us up. But those words, God gave them up, is the same phrase that's used when it says Judas handed over Jesus. He hands us over. And then it says, why, why is he doing this? Because it says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. That word lust, it's an interesting word. It means over desire. It's not just desire. It, it, it describes the state of being of someone having over desire. Desire that's brimming over the top, that's not controlled, that's excessive. Have you ever seen someone in a state of over desire? You've probably seen it, but because we're busy New Yorkers, you kept it moving and you, you didn't pay attention long enough. But if you slow down, you see over desire all around us. How about when, in the early days when iPhones came out? You remember those lines? People sleeping outside of the store just to be one of the first ones to get it? Man, that's over desire. Read this story, reading this fascinating book by this therapist, this theologian, this pastor that he studied um, sexual brokenness. It's a phenomenal book. It's called Unwanted by Jay Springer. I encourage you to read it. Um, he shares a story of his son. His son was like the most epic eater as a kid. If you know kids, there's nothing more frustrating and difficult than a kid that's a picky eater. Because it just complicates everything. Because now all of a sudden, everywhere you go, you got to bring chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, you know, because that's the only thing they eat. But this kid would eat everything, like everything. Uh, he's eating seaweed. He's eating kimchi. He's eating everything as a kid. And he was a white kid. And so you couldn't even, it's amazing. You couldn't even explain it. It's like he's eating things outside of his culture. And he's just like loving it. Thai food. He's like three, four years old. He would get excited when, when exotic foods were brought home. And so there was this moment where his dad gave him like a piece of chicken. And he got really excited but then something triggered, and he just threw himself on the floor, and he starts beating the floor, kicking the floor. How many have ever seen a scene like that, like at Walmart or something like that? Some of you parents are like, please, Chris, stop talking about this. You're, you're bringing up triggering memories. And, and so he was like, I want a big bite. He didn't want a little piece of chicken. He wanted a bigger piece of chicken, and he's just in the throes of over-desire. God says that what happens to us 
when we replace him because of the lust of our hearts, because of the over-desire, where we find ourselves wanting things more than we should want them, where we ruminate about it, where we're constantly plotting and scheming to get more of it, where we don't know how to live without it. And it's a thing that we're pushing God out of the center of our lives for. He says, in those moments, we experience his wrath by him giving us over. It's like, if this is what you want, have it. C.S. Lewis, he said, there are two types of people in this world. He says, one type of person says to God, your will be done. And the other type of person, God says to them, your will be done. That's what Romans 1 is describing, this idea of God giving us up over to our own lust and saying, your will be done. And so one way that people experience the wrath of God is by God not interrupting our lives. Where he, this is what you want. You've consistently made that clear. Here you go. See, our idolatry runs so deep that our intentional forgetfulness of God replacing him with created things, it doesn't just stop there with God giving us over. Look what it also says. It says that it actually affects how we think, how we see things. Verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, what God is describing is that as a result of this exchange, where we exchange the creator for created things, it affects how we think. It distorts our values, how we perceive reality. We can't even be fully trusted to measure and assess reality fully because this idolatrous state messes up how we perceive things. To bring it down even more clearly, in our world, we're constantly seeing futile thinking, darkened understanding as we see the priorities of our world are so skewed. Where every day we see people loving things as a first priority that should be loved as a second, third at best. Where we elevate things above God, where we love things above people, it's rampant. And it all stems from us pushing God out of the center of our lives and him saying, have what you've asked for. This is how we experience God's wrath. This is how we see it in our world throughout history. And even though this sounds so heavy, and it is heavy, and dark, and tough, it's actually incredibly good news. That God reveals his wrath 
Here's how it's good news. If God was not wrathful, if he was ambivalent towards sin, injustice, or evil, what would that say about his love? If God had no wrathful responses to the injustices and the brokenness we see in this world, that would highly question his love. We could legitimately question, what's the nature of your love since you seem to be okay with all this brokenness that we see all around us? But you know what the other thing, that knowing that we serve a God who justly expresses wrath, you know what that does for us if we really internalize that? It frees us from becoming wrathful people. If I know and you know that the wrath of God exists, it's real, and unrighteousness will be met by his wrath, it frees us from becoming the vengeful people that we tend to become when we have no hope in God's justice. For some of us, our struggle to forgive is because we don't believe that justice will happen. But when you know that God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath, and that unrighteousness will be met by his wrath, it frees you up to do the things that Jesus calls us to do, which is to love and forgive others. And when people say, how, could you, how do you have the capacity to love and forgive people when they've done X, Y, and Z? You can confidently know that the only reason you can do that is because you have faith and trust in a God who will meet unrighteousness with his righteous wrath. I don't know how we could sleep at night with all the injustices that happen in the world if we don't have confidence in a God who will meet these unrighteous things in wrath. The world is unmanageable, unlivable, outside of us knowing that our God will execute his righteous wrath against ungodliness. And here's the beautiful nature of the good news of Jesus. To people like you and I that have consistently refused him, and pushed him aside and replaced him with things. And, and then as a result, God says, here, this is what you want. I'm giving you over to it. Even to us, Christ died for the ungodly. You realize, unless you and I understand out who we are, that this is who we are, we push God out of our, out of our lives. We replace him with things. Our lust takes over, over desire. God ends up giving us what we have clearly said we wanted other than him. Unless we understand that God pursuing us in love, it looks nice, it looks cute, but it, it, it's not amazing. You realize he has pursued you and I who have adamantly rejected him. When you get that, when I get that, all of a sudden the fact that God says, I love you with an everlasting love, it has the power to melt you. It, it, it breaks us down in the best way because we're realizing 
oh, this is a love I've never experienced anywhere else because most people would have written me off a long time ago. Most people would not have put up with this kind of just disloyalty and disregard. And yet, you and I, in the face of us doing this, we are confronted with the loving God that pursues us in mercy. When we understand who we are and what we do, only then could we better appreciate the gloriousness of God's grace and mercy. When you and I say, Jesus saved me, that should mean something way deeper than we often let it mean. He didn't save a marginally good person. He didn't save someone who had it all together. He saved someone who fought him tooth and nail, who replaced him with sundry amount of things. That's who he saved. Could I invite us to stand as the worship team comes forward? As we close... I want to invite us to a time of reflection and prayer as we come before the presence of God. Because perhaps this morning you're recognizing that there are things in your life that have taken the place of God. There are good things in your life that you and I have allowed to push God out of the center that are fueling our our choice to forget God, to disregard him, to live disloyally toward him. If that's you, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, if you're recognizing the presence of of something that's occupying the center of your life, Jesus is inviting you to come to him in confession, in repentance, in turning from those things in bringing our lust, our over-desire to the very throne of God. If that's you, as we close in prayer, as we respond in worship and in song, Jesus invites you to come with honesty and say, God, these things have become more important to me than, than you. Bring those to his feet. Jesus. Maybe an appropriate prayer would be to say, God, please don't stop interrupting my life. Please don't let me have what I keep asking for that I think I can't live without if it's going to make me forget you. Would you pray that prayer to come before the presence of God? The prayer team is in the back as we worship, as we respond. If you'd like prayer, the words that were shared earlier, you can slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer during this time.